The BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast, and I'm Lynn Yaffe. Not long after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, disruptions to clinical trials began piling up. Recruiting slowed or was suspended for some, while others grappled with changes to protocols and procedures. Trial sites raced to minimize potential COVID-19 exposure for study participants, in part by adopting new ways to interact with them, with a big focus on telemedicine. Meanwhile, regulators also looked for new ways to adapt. As COVID-19 continues to shape how trials are run throughout the world, both regulators and clinical experts are responding with new ideas to meet today's challenges. One of those experts is today's guest, Laurie Halloran. She's president and CEO of Boston-based Halloran Consulting. While working as a pediatric ICU nurse, Ms. Halloran was inspired to help move new therapies into the hands of patients desperately in need, leading her to start a consultancy to help life sciences companies do just that. Today, we're glad to have her as our guest with Bioworld Managing Editor, Michael Fitzhugh. Welcome, Laurie. Hi, it's nice to be here today. Michael, all yours. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for being with us today, Laurie. Halloran Consulting offers a huge array of services, including advice on regulatory, clinical, and quality-focused work, just to name a few areas. Just to maybe ground us a bit as we get started, could you tell us a little bit about what's keeping you and your team busiest these days? Well, all the things that we were already doing are keeping us busy. Um, you know, there's been an unprecedented amount of investment in life science companies, and there's a really tight talent market. So a lot of our past, present, and future clients turn to us. But in addition to that, we really jumped into the whole decentralized um, clinical trial space because what we're trying to do is help our early stage and small biotechs navigate and be able to act with the innovation of a large pharma. So that's been a very, very big uh, focus over the last year and a half. So decentralized trials, tell me just a little bit about what you mean when you when you say that. Well, it's it's everything that's been developed over the last year and a half, or I should say it was already developed, but nobody was really using it. So that's really the big journey that we've been on um, over the past year and a half. If you didn't have a 20-person innovation team, you didn't have any way to get it um, implemented. And that's the biggest thing that we've been doing. That's been an expansion of the work that we were doing into the into this space. So it's a great topic for me. So there were all these disruptions during COVID-19, especially at the, you know, the start of the pandemic. And you have all of these innovations that are kind of, you know, there in the toolkit, I guess, to be used. What were the risks that people were most worried about? And how did they how did they take up those tools as they tried to address them? Well, the biggest thing that happened in mid-March of 2020 was everything just came to a screeching halt. So the worries that we saw and the anxiety we saw fit into three and sometimes more than one of those three categories. First, sponsors who were developing potential treatments for life-threatening diseases when patients had no other alternatives, especially if the trials were being conducted in a hospital or in an infusion center, the top priority was continuity of care. And in these situations, many of the companies tried to have procedures and visits conducted remotely from visiting nurses who would go and see the patients at home to labs that could be drawn closer to home, but not necessarily in the in the original medical center, to televisits, everyone was simultaneously trying to adapt. 
Next, if the company had a single product with a major milestone that was coming up, and even worse, if the next round of funding was the dependent on that milestone, there was a huge challenge with meeting a deadline that was absolutely going to be impacted by the delays. And then the, the third real aspect of, of anxiety was um, how to capture the massive business interruption in their trials so they could look back and be able to reference it later on. In some way or other, everyone experienced some level of disruption, but, but some experienced a lot more than others when there really wasn't a good adaptation for those elements that I mentioned a, a minute ago. So probably the two biggest things that we saw shifted the mindset toward adopting novel ways to conduct the trials were the shift to reimbursement for televisits by the insurance companies and the new FDA guidances that came out. So I want to ask you about the FDA guidances, but actually first I wanted to see, and can you give me an example of one of those types of disruption? Obviously there, you know, you covered a gamut of them, but is there one type of disruption that was most frequent or sort of highest profile among them? It was really when there was a patient that needed to have a visit in a hospital where there was an infusion um, or there was, you know, a, an an MRI or an X-ray. There was a huge amount of fear on the part of the patients as well as the sponsors um, to expose the patient, especially if they were immunocompromised, to what potentially could be COVID. So a lot of people just were a little bit paralyzed as to what to do for the first few weeks. That's probably the best example I can give you. And you know, with the the dates that you talked about, all of these milestones that we're you know we're always hearing about a company is planning to have you know trial re trial results in a particular quarter. The street is watching for public companies. There obviously must have been a lot of um, I don't know a lot of a lot of concern about figuring out how to how to best manage those risks when when you talk to clients. Yeah, absolutely. What was, what was like the, the tenor of those conversations? Well, I, I, I absolutely recall one CEO um, reaching out to me by text and then asking if she could talk to me like today. And she said, we are going to run out of money if we don't get our program up and running by the, the end of the third quarter. So what can you do to help us do that? So there were there were situations like that. And obviously they weren't uh, across the board because plenty of companies weren't in that situation, but those tend to be our, a lot of our clients. So it was very much a, an emergency. So the FDA, obviously, you re referred to this before, they were paying attention. They In March, they came out with some guidance to try to address the landscape, and mm -hmm. they even came out with some further updates just uh, just the other day um, at the end of August. Mm -hmm. How how have the those guidances and that update helped how you know how, how have they worked out in practice too so all along this journey what we've been seeing um and what we've been trying to manage is in our community that the first people think of when they begin to sit consider changing a trial i.e making it decentralized is fear how is this going to be approved um the fact that fda was supportive and releasing these kind of relaxations of a lot of the protocol, um, you know, the, the, the need to be 100% compliant with the protocol was huge. Um, how the sponsor would make their trial decentralized 
was what they were trying to help the sponsor do. And they were very effective in that, but they had to constantly, the sponsors, the biotech companies had to be constantly reminded, FDA doesn't want you dead in the water. They want to help you get your product further along in this, you know, really, really challenging situation. So what it did over the course of the six months at the end of 2020 was it really helped people start to think about how they could become more decentralized. Um, what they have done in, in all of the experiences that we've had where we've been involved, the FDA wants to hear about the sponsor's processes and use of technology so that they can obtain consent, collect data. But what they really want to see is how you're going to work through the protocol to sort out the potential areas that might be a challenge. So what the FDA will do is look to the sponsor to defend their choices. And that often is what a type C meeting request is, is to review the protocol, review the plan and justify why you've created the plan. And in most situations, the FDA is supportive. So it's been, it's been a real collaboration between the sponsors we encounter, we represent and the FDA. It's an interesting relationship between the FDA and company sponsors because, you know, on one hand, companies are paying all this money to you through Padufa to support the the system and they're reliant wholesale, at least in the U.S., of course, on the agency to make these sort of life or death decisions for their programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes, oftentimes, it, it it comes out that they, you know, they maybe misperceived what the agency was saying, or they they took a positive reading of what was said, and the agency goes another way, you know, disagreeing with an adcom, for instance, or or some some mm-hmm. other sort of surprising move. What um was there trust in that relationship to leverage? I mean, I guess it's another sort of what's the tenor of that like? I mean, what it, what's that relationship evolving into? Well, it really comes down to what the sponsor is considering as the top priority, which is patient safety. So if you've kept the safety assessments as your top priority and you've gotten rid of some of the nice to have data that so many companies can't seem to let go of, and you have options for easing the patient journey through use of technology, the the FDA has been collaborative and open to what what your ration, your stated rationale is for doing that. So, you know, if you thought through your execution and you have a solid rationale for your choices, it's not often that they are going to say an absolute no. They might ask some questions, but they they often don't say no. When you talk about nice to have data, what um what's an example of that? <laughs> well, probably about 30 to 40% of the data that's collected in a clinical trial is nice to have. And when I've sat in protocol design sessions, often the, the clinical trial operations people recognize the challenges with collecting the data, but the medics and the scientists usually say, well, I'd really like to try and have that. And it's, it, it might be <laughs> not safety assessments and not directly efficacy assessments, but they someday might figure out something they want to do with the data. So let's collect it. And there's there's a huge disconnect between the people who have to execute the protocol and the people who've helped design the protocol um, on what makes sense. Interesting. So I can't give you an exact example, but you know, yeah. 
It's very common. <laughs> so is that leading to some sort of like streamlining in which, you know, there's efficiency emerging or, or certain gains that, that weren't there before? Um, it depends on the mindset. I'll, I'll do a little segue here. A few of the sponsors that we've been talking to are creating a choose your own journey mindset where if the patient really wants contact with the physician and wants to be seen live, they can elect to do that. But the, the operations folks have to figure out how to collect consistent data so that if the patient is petrified of going into a, into a research facility where that they might catch COVID, they have to figure out how to collect that data remotely. So there actually are a fair amount of um, both nice to haves and, and out of the box thinking and how to do this. We've just never done it before. We didn't have any good reason to. So now that people have that ability then to maybe choose that journey where they're, they're at home, they're staying out of hospital because they're petrified, are there infrastructural challenges to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, because what has to be done is the protocol needs to be written so that all of those potential options are laid out and then vetted with the um, ethics committees, the physicians that might participate, as well as the FDA. So it definitely makes it more complicated, but as an alternative to not being able to get it done, it's, it's, a, it's a first step down the road to be, becoming more patient-centric. So are there particular areas that are indications that have been more impacted than others? I mean, I guess you mentioned really, you know, life-threatening diseases where in perhaps yeah. rare diseases, is that is adoption of new technologies and new methods accelerated there? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, you know, it depends. And, but, but what I will say as a caveat is what I have seen is that in many situations, it absolutely depends on the buy-in from the C-suite. If the C-suite is absolutely on board and they're supportive of the, the protocol writers and the, the, the um, clinical development folks, then it's much more likely to get adopted. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, an awakening across the board in, in all of the situations that I've been encountering where people say, oh, wow, we can actually try to do this differently. Let's try it. Um, and the more uh, support they have from the top, the more likely it is to be successful. So how much receptiveness is there in the C-suite to, to change? Uh, it absolutely depends on the executives. Um, <laughs> there are, it, it really is. Um, you know, remember what, this, what the executives' biggest concerns are about is around the timelines that they've crafted and they've set as corporate expectations. Um, they typically build the timeline off historical precedent. So what I, what we have been advising is that, you know, if you're trying to get your C-suite on board with decentralization, you have to build in the time on the front end and be very, very clear with needing longer to get started because on the back end, um, you'll save time because often what you really need to do is a pilot to really establish what you're doing. But then when you get to the end of the trial, your data um, collection, your data analyzation is much more rapid. 
So you'll have the results much more quickly than you would if you did it the old way. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the mindset change. Yeah. Interesting. So really it's an investing paradigm. Yes. And it's a, it's a managing up paradigm. It was interesting to me, actually, looking at the consulting site, it, it looks like you're you're doing some leadership coaching in your stock services as well to, to, I would imagine, to engage with that kind of conversation and the need for that. Well, often we're, at, we're placed in the company where we're literally reporting to the CEO um, in a small company or the chief medical officer. So they're one of the techniques we use is to show our client that we have a real breadth with other companies so that while we aren't necessarily going to reveal any science, we really know what people are doing that's ahead of the curve. And if, and it sounds, it's going to sound awful to say, but if, uh, if an executive sees that someone else is doing it and they've been quote, the guinea pig, they're more likely to adopt something. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, especially in a small company, if they're, if, if they think they're the first person to ever do this, they don't want to be the first. And that's really one of the biggest things that's kept this industry behind the times is that there's a real lack of ability to think about, you're not the first person to do it. You might be the first in your company, but there are other people. So to shift gears a little bit, there's a, another big important player in the clinical trial space in terms of uh, clinical research organizations. Mm -hmm. How have these changes been affecting them? So interesting, you know, it's evolved over time. One of the main things that CROs do is they, by extension of being the sponsor's feet on the ground, is they go to the research sites and they monitor. And you know, 10 years ago, the concept of risk-based monitoring was endorsed by FDA, or I should say written as, as an acceptable new method of, of um, being efficient in clinical trials. But most companies have not really ever adopted that in any meaningful way. But the CROs were completely prevented from being able to go to the site. So what they needed to do was figure out how to do it remotely. And that's complicated when the research site doesn't have and will or will not give the CRO access to the medical records. When it's when they're electronic metal, medical records, they often can't give access to it. So in that situation, it was a, a huge disruption. Um, I, you know, I did a I did another um, presentation where I I looked at you know the the good, the bad, and the ugly of how. Um, compliance was managed over the course of this. And what sponsors do and CROs do is they dictate how frequently they're going to go and what they're going to look at. And that's what they anticipate is going to be part of the inspection that comes along at the end when the, when the program's being um, reviewed by FDA. So to, to start with an expectation of every six weeks, we're going to go and have it drastically change to we can't go for an indefinite period of time, made the CROs need to think out of the box. One of the challenges with CROs, and the bigger they are, the harder it is, is thinking out of the box. Um, what CROs do is, is they do their standard procedures really well, but, but thinking 
and, and acting differently on the fly is quite different. So I, I, you know, to sum that up, I would say CROs are needing to get on the truck that's moving into the decentralized space. But what will change is most of what they charge is based on people hours and technology is going to change that a lot and how that's going to shake out yet. I don't yet know, but I have some guesses. So tell me that I want to hear about those guesses. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this all going? Well, well, I think if a CRO isn't embracing the use of technology to um, reduce or eliminate some of the very laborious activities that they were charging the sponsor for, if the, the folks who don't do that are going to ultimately find that the business model for their work has changed. Um, most of the big CROs are saying that they've embraced all of these things, but when you audit them before you select them, it, it often isn't what it has been built as when you, when you dig deeper, you know, they might be partnering with a third party vendor who complicates the data custody, but they don't necessarily, you can't choose your own journey, put it that way, as a sponsor. They're, they're fairly rigid in how they do things. And I think if they don't get on the bandwagon with that, they're they're probably going to see their, their business erode over time. And that's, you know, that's my projection. I might be wrong, but I still think it's something they really need to watch. So further to the crystal ball, how durable do you think the changes, the pandemic um, tied changes to trials that have occurred, you know, that have been adopted by sponsors and trialists? How durable do you think those are? I mean, are they going to last? Great question. Um, so so I'll, I'll share two experiences that I had. One is when, when this first started, we started having town halls and the, my, call, my goal was to not have to lay anybody off basically. And because everything was disrupted, we started pulling people together and, and really quickly, the town halls on Zoom grew to 250, 275, 300 people every week. Everyone was looking for answers as to how to make changes that they will ultimately be able to make last. One of the things that came out of that, not the town halls, but in, in, in a parallel way, is something called the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance. And it has grown to several hundred companies who are working and volunteering to share their insights, their best practices. I think there are 20 working groups right now on how to change this so that it's broadly adopted. So it's everything from standard nomenclature to education and training to um, how to adopt change, um, regulatory impacts. It's really a huge effort, which I'm really happy to see. Um, I think that probably is the is the best thing that's come out of this because I think people see that there's the opportunity to do real change, make real change. It sounds like some really strong momentum there. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. I think that that's a that's a good place to uh, to leave things today. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. You are welcome. 
Thank you, Lori and Michael. The way the industry and FDA are evolving is certainly a reason for optimism. As always, BioWorld will continue to keep you informed of all of the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates in this field. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to BioWorld.com, follow us on Twitter, or email us at newsdesk at BioWorld.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service. But all of our COVID-19 content, more than 5,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible.